As you know, the President of the United States gave his State of the Union address on Tuesday. I ran out of gas. I had a flat tire. I didn't have enough money for cab fare. My tux didn't come back from the cleaners. An old friend came in from out of town. Someone stole my car. There was an earthquake. A terrible flood. Locust! It wasn't my fault, I swear to God! Afterwards, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley presented the Republican response. I just wish we could all get along like we used to in middle school. I wish that I could bake a cake made out of rainbows and smiles and we'd all eat and be happy. Following that, the mainstream media responded to Governor Haley's address. So beautiful, so radiant, so irresistible. Oh boy, that is one tasty dish. I'll say. I think I'm in love. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. Well, it was something like that. That was pretty close. <laughs> I mean, so the Oscar nominations are out, and we'll talk about that. But first, I really have to go back and look at the way the media, our friends and the mainstream media, treated Nikki Haley after this address. You know, I live in an area where there are coyotes because Los Angeles is not just a moral desert. It's actually a desert desert. And coyotes, I, I hate them. They're mean, you know, scavengers and all this stuff. And they come down out of the mountains. I've seen, I've actually seen a coyote. They, they'll steal a dog, a little dog, right out from under you. Especially, they're not afraid of women at all. They're afraid of men. But they will just come by and just rip the dog off the leash and carry it away. And I've seen a coyote with a little dog in its mouth just carrying it off into the woods. And I, I, was, I once had a flat tire up in the, uh, in the canyons in Santa Barbara. And I'm from that generation of men that can actually change a flat tire, you know, fix a flat tire. And I got out and took my jack out of the trunk and it snapped in half because they don't make, you know, it, it's like the books in the time machine. They don't, nobody uses them anymore. So, so I'm standing there waiting for the AAA guys to come and the coyotes start coming down out of the canyon saying, hmm, what's this, you know? <laughs> Luckily, I'm fairly aggressive myself. So it was, you know, half and half whether they'd have eaten me or the other way around. But the, the thing that coyotes do that I'm thinking about when I think about the media is they will actually send one coyote down if the dog is too big to take alone they'll send a coyote down to if it's a male to flirt with it and to lead it on or just to befriend it and sort of make it think it's another dog and they will draw the dog out into the woods and then the other coyotes will gather around it and tear it to pieces and that's what they do at night. During the day, they work for the network news departments because, <laughs> because what you're seeing with, with Nikki Haley is you're seeing what's called the strange new respect. This was a term that was coined in an American Spectator article in 1992. Tom Bethel wrote a column about a strange new respect. And that's what you get if you are a right winger who moves to the left or does something damaging to other conservatives. That's what you get from the media. Suddenly, you, you're mature. You've grown wise. You're, you're growing in your office. And this is especially used when Supreme Court justices start making, you know, left-wing liberal decisions. Suddenly, oh, he's grown in office. He's grown. The other thing they would call this is because Linda Greenhouse was the reporter for the New York Times who covered the Supreme Court. They would call it the greenhouse effect because after a while, when you're in this Washington bubble, you just want to please the media. And the media is the only feedback you're getting, and nobody likes to be hit all the time. Nobody likes to be criticized all the time. So you just start unconsciously almost trying to please Linda Greenhouse, and that's the greenhouse effect. And that 
was Nikki Haley. So President Obama, you remember him from our last show, he's, he's the president of the United States. He doesn't know he's the president of the United States, but we know he's the president. Of the United States. We know he's responsible for what's going on in the country. He stands up in the biggest bully pulpit in the world and makes a speech telling us everything is tickety-boo, everything is great, you know, that the war, it's not his fault, but, the, you know, the war, the divisiveness in the country, the racial strife that we're having, the slow economic comeback after the 2008 collapse, you know, it, you don't, who are you going to believe, him or your lying eyes? And then Nikki Haley gets up, and this is just a, a little portion of her response. We need to be honest with each other and with ourselves. While Democrats in Washington bear much responsibility for the problems facing America today, they do not bear it alone. There is more than enough blame to go around. We as Republicans need to own that truth. We need to recognize our contributions to the erosion of the public trust in America's leadership. We need to accept that we've played a role in how and why our government is broken. And then we need to fix it. The foundation that has made America that last best hope on earth hasn't gone anywhere. It still exists. It's up to us to return to it. For me, that starts right where it always has. I am the proud daughter of Indian immigrants who reminded my brothers, my sister, and me every day how blessed we were to live in this country. Growing up in the rural South, my family didn't look like our neighbors, and we didn't have much. There were times that were tough, but we had no, each you, other. You can cut this off. And we had the opportunity to do. She goes on to say that we can't be seduced by the angriest voices, by whom she apparently meant Donald Trump, and says, you know, we don't want anybody who's going to say that not everyone is welcome, as Trump has said, we should suspend uh, Islamic immigration until we figure out what, what we're doing and how to, you know, incorporate these people, if we can, in fact, incorporate these people. So, of course, the coyotes, the mainstream media, they come down and they, they now they love her. Come into the woods with us, my dear. We love you. You know, please follow, follow us off into the forest. So here's just a quick montage of the kind of hardball questions she was given the next morning. But, Governor, a lot of people looked at your address last night and saw it not only as a rebuttal to President Obama's State of the Union, but also a call to your own party and a call to distance your party from Donald Trump. Governor, you're also getting, many people are applauding you today for really speaking very candidly and criticizing your own party. Was that difficult for you to do? It's rare for people to do that. Let's talk about the reviews. They're in. Prominent Democrat David Rod says this. He tweeted, really effective speech by Nikki Haley, avoided the response to the State of the Union curse. Paul Ryan, Jeb Bush both said you hit it out of the park. But as Peter just mentioned, some very conservative voices in your party were not so happy. Yeah, I mean, you can look at her if you can, if you are subscribing and you can see what we're doing here, you can look at her face and she's lapping this stuff up. And of course, you know, when he talks about the very, it's only the very conservative people who are attacking. Well, first Trump attacks her because he just lashes out at anybody. And Trump says, you know, she's very bad on immigration, which actually isn't true. Nikki Haley's good on immigration. She has strengthened the anti-immigration laws in her, the anti-illegal immigration laws in her state. She's suing Obama for his lawless, uh, you know, executive actions. She's, she's fine. That's fine. That's not the problem. That's not the problem. Just let's let's hear her responses to Matt Lauer and the rest. And 
What it was was calling out my party. I mean, that was very true. I called out Republicans and I called out Democrats because I think it's important. If the country's going to move forward, we all need to look in the mirror. We all need to realize that we've all had something to do with this. Because once you do that, you can regroup and, and build the country back up again. So, so you know, she's just, she's just calling out both parties. She's just being fair. She is just being fair. Obama is standing up in the biggest bull bully pulpit in the world. It's a presidential election year. We are fighting for the soul of the country. We're fighting for the soul of the country. I mean, yesterday when I said that Obama was not a, going to be a consequential president because nothing he does works, because everything he does fails, it's going to have to be fixed. That's only true, that is only true, if we don't elect somebody who then fixes it by turning it into absolute socialism like a Hillary Clinton or a Bernie Sanders. We are fighting for the heart and soul of the country. And she is using her 15 minutes on the main stage to just to be fair. Can't we all get along? Play, play the other cut of her. I was given the opportunity by Speaker Ryan and Senator McConnell to say what I think. And so I was very critical of the administration. I was very critical of the things that Obama hasn't done, you know, whether it's health care, whether it's the economy, um, whether it's education, whether it's dividing the country. But I was also critical about our own Republicans. And that's because we can't assume that we have no blame here. Yeah, we can't assume, you know. <laughs> And, and the thing about this is, by the way, it has nothing to do, nothing to do with the truth or falsehood of her statements, has nothing to do with her policies. You know, she's a, she's a financial conservative, I would say. She's the one who took down the Confederate flag after the shooting, which, you know, I have no great love for the Confederate flag, I admit, but it had nothing to do with the shooting and people who see it. There are people who see in the Confederate flag a symbol of independence and freedom, and I have no problem with that. Other people obviously see other things, and I have no problem with that either. But, you know, she is, she is playing to the media. And in this moment, in this moment, when we are fighting for the heart and soul of the country, when on the one side we have, you know, guys like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio who actually stand for things that, you know, you don't have to agree with everything they say, you don't have to love them, but they stand for things that this country has stood for since its founding. And on the other side, you have people who are supporting some form of socialism, which we have known from the 19th century on. We have known it as anti-freedom, and we know it fails. This is not the moment to use your, your moment on the stage to be conciliatory. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be ugly. But you got to fight. This is a fight. And Republicans how dumb are they? Well, they're not that dumb. They're not that dumb. They love the coyotes. The coyotes come in and they say, we love you, we love you, follow us. And what she doesn't realize, what Nikki Haley doesn't realize is this last, and John McCain never realized this either because he's the other one, this lasts exactly up until the moment you were running against a Democrat and then you're trash. And that's when, the, that's when you hear, if you've ever heard coyotes feed, you know, and you hear that whoop, whoop, whoop at the, the night, and the next morning there are all the little posters on the telephone poles, my dog is missing, have you seen my dog? Yeah, I've seen, I heard your dog getting eaten last night, you know. That, that's when they come out. They, they coax you into running. They say, you know the one who should run, he's a reasonable, John McCain should run for president. John McCain would be the perfect, the perfect choice, you know, and we would, we would treat John McCain fairly because he He's, he's a, uh, you know, we have strange new respect for John McCain. And then, of course, you get out and you step out in front of Obama, and that's when you look around, oh, my God, I'm surrounded by coyotes, you know? And the reason, look, you want to see who the press is. You want to see who, who the press is. Yesterday, the 10, was it a 10 or 11 sailors who were momentarily kidnapped on their two boats by Iran were released, okay? 
Joe Biden goes on and they ask him, you know, did we apologize? You know, what did we do? You know, we why they were they were apparently close to Iranian waters. And Joe Biden goes in and says, no, 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 this is this is all fine. And so play Biden. Well, I can tell you that what happened was apparently we had uh, from our military, one of the boats had engine failure, drifted into Iranian waters. The Iranians picked up both boats, as we have picked up Iranian boats where that needed to be rescued, and took them to. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where. I don't want to. I, I don't want to misspeak here. Mm -hmm. And uh, realized they were there in distress, and uh, and said they would release them and release them like you know ordinary nations would do. That's the way. Nations should deal with love. That's why it's important to have channels open. Did we apologize had, to the Iranians? Um, no, there's no apology. There's nothing to apologize for. When, when, you, when you have a problem with the boat, you apologize the boat had a problem? No. There, <laughs> and there was no looking for any apology. Okay. There, I mean, this was just standard nautical practice. And now let's play the sailors. This was the Iranians then released this video of the sailors in captivity. It was a mistake. That was our fault and we apologize for our mistake. How was the Iranian behavior with you? The Iranian behavior was fantastic while we were here. We thank you very much for your hospitality and your assistance. So no apologies except for the apology. And of course they were treated great except they also released pictures. First of all, you can see the female sailor has got the, has got to wear the head scarf. So she's got to be covered up. They were uh, pictures of them released, basically bowing down to the deck of the boat. This is a, a violation of the Geneva Conventions. You know, you do not, you're not allowed to make videos of captured soldiers for propaganda purposes. That is in violate. But of course, I don't. Iran's not signed onto the Geneva Conventions and probably couldn't find Geneva if they tried. So I don't know what difference that makes. But but now, how does the media spin this? This is, I promise you, I'm not making this up. This is the headline in the New York Times a former newspaper. Iran's swift release of U.S. sailors hailed as a sign of warmer relations. A crisis over the seizing of two American patrol boats in the Persian Gulf was averted Wednesday when Iran returned the craft and released their crews as Pentagon officials struggled to explain how the boats had ended up near a major Iranian naval base. Their quick release was hailed by the Obama administration as an unintended benefit of the new diplomatic relationship with Iran established by the nuclear accord negotiated between Tehran and the United States and five other nations in July. So give the Iranians nukes and they'll let your soldiers go, as your sailors go. It's a, it's a fair deal. The accord is expected to go into effect. Thinking, thanking the Iranians for their cooperation, Secretary of State John Kerry said Wednesday that we can all imagine how a similar situation might have played out three or four years ago. Okay, so it's all, this is great. It's great they took our sailors. What, you know, that I, I feel so, I have this warm feeling about the Iranians now because as they're building, you know, last night, I don't sleep much. I, I sleep about three, four hours a night. So I get, I get a lot of reading done in the middle of the night. Last night, three o'clock in the morning, I'm reading uh, a biography of George Washington and Washington is stepping down from the presidency. And Washington say whatever you will, he had a very successful presidency, really, you know, just accomplished a lot and formed the basis of our, our country. The press, George Washington was probably the only, the single man on the continent, the single man on any continent, I would go so far as to say, who in the position he was in would not have become king. He was in charge of an army. He had he had the adulation of the people. The people worshipped him. I mean, he, they, they 
thought him close to a god when he was when he was made president they strew they literally strew the street with roses as he walked to the what was being used as the white house and all and the press was just attacking him the Fed, the republican press meaning the press that was in favor of a republic all they did was attack him for being a monarchist Okay, they, they just thought this guy, this guy is trying to be king. He doesn't shake hands with people. He makes treaties with with England. I mean, England, they have a king. He's trying to be a king. You know, he hates the French, and the French have this wonderful French Revolution where they're beheading everybody, and he's he's not so happy about that. What's what's wrong with this guy? I mean, the one seriously, the one man on any continent who, in that position, would not have become king, and all they did was attack him for being king. Now, at the same time, at the same time and just about at the same moment in his life as he came to the end of his presidency, one of his wife's slaves, who she thought of as almost like a child, a, her, her own child, she thought, this is my pet, this is my, you know, m this girl I like, and I'm, she escaped because she knew if she went back to the south with them, she went back to Mount Vernon, she knew she wouldn't be able to get away. So she, they were, the capital was then in Philadelphia, so she took off into New England. Washington went out of his way to try and get her back. He was absolutely, he couldn't understand why somebody so well-treated would escape. He couldn't understand why somebody so well-treated would escape. This, this absolute monument of virtue, and he really was, he was one of the most virtuous men who ever lived. I don't know any other word to describe him. He could not see. He had fought, sacrificed, he had bled in the snow for eight years for liberty, and he couldn't see that she wanted to be free. He sent agents out to get her. He kind of abused the office of the presidency, trying to get her back as one of the very few times he acted without perfect virtue. It's one of the very few times he did what was a sin. It would be a sin to any of us. And and when the guys, the agent went to find her, she said, the, the woman said to him, I just want to be free. They didn't even teach me how to read. You know, I, I want to be free. And, and Washington was convinced she had been seduced by some lover and then made pregnant. But in fact, she then got married in freedom. And and then got pregnant, so it was obvious that hadn't that hadn't happened. She never went back. She she finally she escaped. So I'm reading this heartbreaking story because it's heartbreaking because you can't help but just uh, you know uh, admire Washington to the point of adulation, and it just occurred to me how hard it is, how hard it is to see the truth, even if you are a monument of a man, even if you're a great man and a good man, how hard it is to see the truth, and our media is no longer even trying. I mean, we've kind of been talking about this all week. When you put George Stephanopoulos, a Clinton hack, as your chief anchor, you're not trying. You know, when you have a Cuomo in, at CNN, you know, reporting that you're not trying. You're not trying to find the truth. And what gets me is, what what is the point of of living at all? And certainly, what's the point of living a thinking life if what you're if you're not trying to find the truth? What's going on? You know, we're coming into this. We're coming in finally into the primaries. Thank heavens. Thank heavens we'll have some information <laughs> outside of polls, you know. And I've been and I keep saying I think that, you know, Marco Rubio is gonna come out and surprise everybody. But I could you know, what do I know? Who knows? Nobody knows anything. I was I was absolutely gobsmacked to use the British phrase, by uh, when Obama got up and he just made that sneering remark about climate change. Oh, if you want to argue about climate change. Oh, listen, we, we don't know why ice ages happen. We don't know why they end. We don't know anything. We can't predict the weather 10 days in the future, certainly not 10 years. 
we don't know the future. We don't know the future. All these people talking to you on the radio, telling you what's going to happen and how people behave, they don't know. I mean, this is the one thing. You can come here. This is like listening to Socrates, folks, because I will tell you, I don't know. <laughs> All right? But what is the point if you're not trying to see through the smoke and through the spin and at least try and understand what people are looking for and what they're trying to do? And our media has completely absconded on that. They have completely left behind that mission. And I, I, don't, I really don't know how they sleep at night. I really don't know how the people who write the New York Times, not the reporters, because the reporters do a fairly good job. It's the guys who place the stories, who are placing, you know, a story about, you know, Pope Benedict and some abuse thing he had nothing to do with in their in their lead section when women are being raped in Cologne by Muslims. That's that's the guys I'm I'm out after. Why? How do they sleep? knowing that they go up, wake up every morning not trying to find the truth, but trying to obscure it from people, the people who are paying them to find the truth. All right, let's deal with the Oscars here. Here's, here's, here's the man announcing the nominees. The nominees for Best Picture are Oliver Stone's high-level political story of a courageous crusader bucking the tide of conventional wisdom to stand firm in defense of what's right. Yes, The Surge, with Josh Brolin revisiting the role of the embattled George W. Bush as he turned the tide of war in Iraq. Who could forget those inspiring scenes where the Democrats in Congress, including Obama and Joe Biden, urged Bush to surrender with all their mainstream media cronies joining in, and yet the isolated Bush, virtually alone, pushes forward the strategery that leads to victory. What a patriotic tribute to one man's courage. You didn't see this one. All right. Then Goliath Falls, with Robert Redford directing a terrific ensemble cast of young stars, playing a gang of intrepid bloggers and new media reporters battling the biggest and most corrupt cover-up since Watergate. This time, it's the mainstream news media themselves who have become what they once beheld, using Nixonian techniques to keep the public from finding out about dishonest behavior by acorn workers, climate scientists, and, of course, so-called czars right in the White House. My favorite scene was the Al Pacino cameo as ABC anchor Charlie Gibson. I don't know nothing about no stinking acorn. Thrilling stuff. Vin Diesel, a little miscast as Andrew Breitbart, but other than that, didn't you love... You didn't see this one either. <clears throat> well, this has got to be the audience favorite, an inspirational tale of that unparalleled form of courage born only of faith. After that humiliating performance romanticizing communist murderer Che Guevara, great to see Steven Soderbergh and Benicio Del Toro redeem themselves with the biopic Santoro. Who didn't feel uplifted watching Catholic priest Andrea Santoro rescuing women from slavery in Turkey despite death threats from the Russian mob? And then there was that devastating scene that just said it all when Father Santoro, kneeling in his church in prayer, is fatally shot in the back by a Muslim youth shouting Allahu Akbar. Wasn't it awesome to see the extensive mainstream news coverage of Santoro's death in a half paragraph on page Y72 of the New York Times brought to startling cinematic life? So, those are the nominees, and the winner is... Yeah, I'm lying. There's no movie about Santoro, or Mediagate, or The Surge. I made them up. I certainly did, and there never will be those movies as long as conservatives are wandering around trying to fix the latest crisis and letting the culture go to, go to waste. 
So the nominees for Best Picture, the real nominees, are the big short in which Wall Street is blamed for the work of Barney Frank in Congress, The Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, Mad Max Fury Road, in which feminism trumps storytelling. I thought that picture was terrible. I mean, it had this beautiful color palette. When you're watching an adventure picture and thinking, what a nice color palette. <laughs> you know, not, that's not a good sign. You know? So Mad Max Fury Road, I thought, was just terrible. And, and you know, Charlize Theron became the hero Tom Hardy had nothing to do, basically, and it, it's bad storytelling. It's bad storytelling not to put your hero at the center of the of the picture. The Martian, that's the one. I'll come back to that in a minute. The Revenant, which I must admit I have not seen, and Room I haven't seen. Spotlight, I saw a good picture. It's not going to win because it's too controversial, I don't think. But that wasn't a well-written picture about the Catholic uh, abuse scandal and its uncovering by the, by the newspapers. You know, Last year was a bad year for movies. I mean, there just weren't that many good movies. And one of the ways you know when a when an art form is getting old and starting to get moribund, starting to die, is that the good pictures, the good pieces of art, and the popular pieces of art become two different pieces of art. When an art form is at its peak, when it starts, it's not just the intellectuals who are going to see the Shakespeare play. It's also the guys who think his sex jokes are funny. You know, that's that's how that's what Shakespeare. Shakespeare had the crowd, but he also had the brains. You know, when movies started, if you go back and look at the films that won Oscars, 1939, 1940, and so on, they were great films, but they were also the most popular film of the year. So now what you get is you have films that are interesting and good, like Spotlight, but that's a tiny little film. Nobody cares about that. Nobody saw that film. And then you have pictures like Mad Max Fury Road, which are very popular, but just aren't very good. And the only one that actually kind of fills the Hollywood bill is The Martian. Uh, I don't know if it has the weight, the moral weight to win. You know, I don't know if it's serious enough to win, but that was an actually good movie and people loved it. And uh, really, uh, you know, it was really fun to watch. I have to say, by the way, having picked on v Ricky Gervais a little bit, is it Gervais or Gervais? <laughs> okay. He, he was the host of the Golden Globes. I just have to go back and give him props because he made a joke about, um, you know, the transgender Bruce Jenner and yeah. Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah, sorry. Say, yeah, him, her, whatever, whatever. Ah, I'm, I'm a woman now, you know. <laughs> I don't, hey, don't tell me I'm not a woman. I'll punch your lights out. Uh, he made a joke about her saying that she... Uh, she hadn't done much for women drivers because she was in a car accident. It killed somebody, so it was bad for women drivers. And, of course, Twitter says, oh, you're transphobic. You're transphobic. <laughs> Let me tell you, if you know how people become transgender, you would be transphobic too. And I, I got to say, Gervais just stood up to him. He said, you have every right to be offended, but don't cry when no one cares. And as far as I'm concerned, that could be a country song. You have every right to be offended, but don't cry when no one cares. <laughs> I think that, I think that you know, the reason I always stand up for comedians, even though they get kind of vulgar, is because they do stand up for vulgarity against the people who want to shut down speech and say everything is offensive and everything. So good for him. All right, stuff I like. First of all, a lot of people have been dying. Alan Rickman died today. He was a really fine actor. I saw him on stage, and of course, he was in—he was became a great, as all great British actors did. He became a great American villain. Americans love to cast the Brits as villains, and he was in Die Hard, and he was in everything. He was just a, a really Harry Potter movies, right? He was a, a lot of stuff. A really fine actor. He died, and of course, uh, Natalie Cole, Nat King Cole's daughter, died also uh, fairly young, sixty-nine or something. She had she had had drug problems and all that stuff. She had a beautiful voice, I gotta say. I mean, she was best when she was doing standards, but she really had a beautiful voice. 
But David Bowie, if you're reading the New York Times, and I don't mean this as an attack on David Bowie, and I mean no disrespect. It's not the kind of music I like. It's, you know, I, I, always, I always thought that song, Ground Control to Major Tom, was pretty good. But, you know, I, I, I really wouldn't know if he was a good rocker. It's just not the stuff that I like. But the New York Times has run no less than eight stories many of them on the front page, many of them in a box on the front page, over days, days on end, about David Bowie's death, you know? And I just, I'm sorry, he just was not that important. I don't think to anybody <laughs> it could have been that important. I mean, you know, if, if like, I can't even think of an artist who could die at this point that, that would be worth eight, you know, front page stories in the New York Times. But it was all about the transgender stuff. It was all about the fact that he kind of came out very early as being androgynous. You never knew. He slept with everybody. He slept with men. He slept with women. He was, he was a pioneer of androgyny. So good for him. He paved the way for future confused people. And I guess that's it. So anyway, I didn't want to put any of these people on stuff I like because David Bowie meant nothing to me. Uh, Natalie Cole, I thought, was was quite good. But uh, I don't know. She, she Because she never moved out of the standard range. When I listen to standards, I either want to hear the original guys. I either want to hear Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby and Ella Fitzgerald because they were so great. There's actually no reason to cover them. Or if they're going to cover them, I want to hear somebody do something modern and jazzy, like a cabaret singer. And one of my favorite cabaret singers is a woman named Tierney Sutton, who uh, you know just kind of makes the jazz scene. She's just around. You know, you can pick her up. She does. She does record albums. She does record you know CDs, and you can get her stuff, and you can find it on YouTube and everything. But she's really worthwhile. And this is her singing Cole Porter's. I get no kick from champagne, and just, I always say this, but just, these are, this is from the days when people wrote lyrics, and so this is like, I get no kick from champagne, and I, I some, some get a kick from cocaine, I think that if I took even one sniff, it would bore me terrifically too, and my, my favorite lyric of all time, my favorite single line in, in American song writing is the last verses, I get no kick in a plane, Flying too high with some guy in the sky is my idea of nothing to do. I don't know how many rhymes are in that one sentence, but I couldn't do it. It just sounds perfectly natural. Hey, that's it for the week. We're done. We're done. The debate is tonight. We'll watch the debate and come back and talk about it. I'm hoping to get to the movies, but mostly I'm hoping to watch football over the weekend. I hope you guys have a good weekend. Let's hear Tierney. Let's, we will move out with Tierney Sutton singing I Get No Kick From Champagne. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. I get no kick from champagne Mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all So tell me why should it be true, true, true That I get a kick out of you Some get a kick from cocaine I'm sure that